0: So, I am speaking from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 15, Um, and as we read from Jeremiah 7, 1 to 15, I request those who are able to stand uh, as, as we read from God's Word. I am reading from the English Standard Version. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 15. Jeremiah 7, 1-15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery? Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that, that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to because of the evil of, my, of Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you, and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kingsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful day that you have blessed us with. Help us to understand from your word, Heavenly Father, and help your servants speak your words and your message that you want your people to listen to. Enable our thoughts not to wander away, but to remain focused on your word. And help us to be a church that is not one that is mere outwardly in appearance, but we want to be so functionally. We want to be Christian so that we can shed Your light in this lost world. This we ask in the most precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Last time I spoke, I spoke from Jeremiah 4, verses 1 to chapter 5, verse 31. And we saw how Judah didn't learn anything from her sister Israel. If you remember what I had said... When Jeremiah wrote those chapters, it was 100 years ago that they saw Israel fall to the Assyrians. How they were practicing the same, same explicit things. How they were worshipping false gods. How they were oppressing the weak. How there was sin rampant in the city. And Judah was doing the same thing. But still, even though there were so many warnings given to, Israel, or to, to, to Judah, saying, look at your sister Israel. Learn from their mistake, they still willingly chose to turn away from God's warnings, from God's people, from God's prophet. Today's section is from Jeremiah 7, 1-15, to and we see, not only in 7, but in 5, in chapter 6, and in this chapter, we see that God's warnings continue through Jeremiah, and how Jeremiah keeps reminding these people of the sin that they do, the wrong that they do. And basically this section is explaining to us, or to the people of that time, how God's actions are justified. His punishment is justified against the people of Israel. How they have intermingled abominable pagan practices along with their Jewish traditions. How they have, they have messed up temple worship. How they are steeped in adultery, in idolatry, in worshipping other gods, in stealing and murdering. And going after their lustful desires. And if you look at the story of uh, Jeremiah, you'd see that he's not the only prophet that lived at that time. There were many false prophets who lived in that, in, in not only in Israel, but in also Judah. And basically a prophet is someone who speaks God's word to God's people. But these people were lying to the people of Israel, basically saying, you don't have to worry. Continue living the way you have to live. Because there is no danger. And it was only Jeremiah who was speaking against these people. It was only Jeremiah who had a different message to preach. Pointing out people's sins and mistakes and warning them of judgment. Because a prophet would bring God's message to his people. He would warn them of danger if there was any danger. He would warn them of backsliding. He would warn them of sin. And if these people did not repent or turn from their ways, so to speak, their last message to them was the punishment that was coming. And these false prophets, they went from God because they were lying to the people. By this point in time, you see the Jews are serving Baal and other false gods in the temple of Yahweh. They brought pagan worship into the temple. They were maintaining the practice of their Jewish rites and traditions, such as the sacrifices and the rituals and the prayers. But they were living their lives as pagans do. They were doing all the nonsense that they were doing. All that God commanded through Moses to tell his people not to do, that you read in the first five books of the Bible, they were doing that. It was a total messy mix of Jewish and pagan lifestyles. And when you inspect Judah's lifestyle As you read Jeremiah, you will see that they have broken every single one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people on Mount Sinai. Every single one of them. Six out of them, or seven out of them, in this passage is mentioned that they have been breaking it continuously. But that's not the most atrocious part of all. Them practicing pagan worship and all the sin that they do. What puts fuel on the fire is what he says... Or what God says through Jeremiah in chapter 7 is in verses 8 to 11. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. See, what we have to understand about these people, the Judites, is that they were religiously observant people. They wore their Passover best. They had their scrolls tucked under their arms. And they practiced and kept all the tenets of Jewish law. But these people had taken their faith in the living God and reduced it to a faith in a building. A faith that was empty. Their problem was they presumed on God's promises and they thought they could get away with anything. They assumed that they could go on sinning and be steeped in the filth that they were practicing because of the promises that God made with the people over the course of history. They thought presumption means you assume something that someone has told you and you act accordingly, thinking that there is no consequences. These people wanted to do all the sin that they had to do, saying, oh, I'm okay, because God has made promises with the patriarchs of Israel. They didn't believe that they were in danger because, after all, God made a covenant with Abraham, promising him that he would have countless descendants and the land that they lived in was an everlasting possession for him and his descendants. They believed that they were not in real danger because in Mount Sinai, God made them his chosen people. They believed that they were not in danger because God made a covenant with David saying that his kingdom will be an everlasting one. And when you read Psalms, you get the idea that the temple was a visible reminder to Judah of God's presence and protective power. So if the temple is standing, we're okay. We're fine. So their conclusion was, as long as the temple is up, God will always protect us and we're safe. And all we have to do is, even though we make mistakes, we have to just go to the temple, offer sacrifices for all the sins we commit, pay the payment for the sin, and we're okay. We can enjoy doing what we enjoy. Go about regular life. Live our sinful life lives without obedience to God. They believe that performing the temple rituals allowed them to return to their wicked practices without fear of punishment. That is their problem, and it stemmed from their presumption on God's promises. They thought they found a loophole in God's law, how they could continue sinning and still get away with it. But what does God say? I... Behold, I myself have seen it. They thought Yahweh was blind. I have been watching. That's what God says. And the result of such a reckless disregard of Yahweh was that the temple, the house that was called by God's name, became a den of robbers. A robber's cave, so to speak. Robbers and bandits who commit violent crimes of robbery, they secure for themselves a place basically in a secluded area. It was their hideout, where after they they, they do their crimes, they would run and hide over there and wait until all the commotion and all the uproar and all the heat of the police dies down so that they can go on outside and continue committing fresh robberies. That is basically what Yahweh's people were doing. They were lawbreakers. They were covenant breakers. They are trespasses, as you can read, they deserve divine judgment, but still they flee to the temple for protection with their rituals and their sacrifices. And after they think that the sin has been paid for, it's okay, I can go out and start a new, fresh set of sins. The temple was those robbers' cave, their hideout. And the thought of, the, the unfortunate thing is the thought of the people at that time was they thought the temple was indestructible. Their thought process was that God was amidst them because of that building that stood there. And in verse 12 you see Jeremiah introducing a vivid illustration to prove to them that God's presence amongst his people is not associated with a particular place or a location or a building. God reminds them of Shiloh. And if those of you who have read the Kings and, and especially 1 Samuel, you will know that Shiloh was the first permanent place of temple worship. When Eli was the priest. That was the place where God's tabernacle stood. That is where worship took place. That's where the sacrifices were offered. And about 1050 BC, the Philistines came and defeated Jerusalem, or, or, or the people, the, the, the Jewish people, Because God couldn't take the wickedness that was going on over there. How could he allow his tabernacle to be in a place filled with so much wickedness? So he allowed the Philistines to come and destroy that place. And if you look at it historically or archaeologically, you will see after that time, Shiloh was just a deserted, empty, ruined place. And God was saying, look at Shiloh. Because of the way you are living your lives, because of your wickedness, this place will become like Shiloh. And as you read Jeremiah, you come to understand that when the Babylonians came for Jerusalem, they destroyed Solomon's temple. What God said would happen, happened. Jeremiah in verses 5 to 7 defined the kind of religion that pleases God. He was clear that for the Judites to remain in the land, there were conditions that had to be met. They had to be just with one another. There should be no oppression of people who come to visit them. There should be no oppression of the fatherless, of the widows. There should be no shedding of innocent blood. There should be no worshipping of other gods. And all these conditions that God communicated to his people through Jeremiah, they were all, I shouldn't say easy, but they could be fulfilled. Because a common teaching of the Bible is God does not want things that you are not able to accomplish. He doesn't give you more than what you can bear. If he has given you rules to follow, it is because he knows you can follow them. But when you don't follow them, don't make the excuse saying, it's too much for me. Because it is only your willful going away or turning your head away from those rules. It is your disobedience that you are not able to fulfill what God has told you to, to do. But Judah preferred to trust in worthless words and presume on God. They wanted to enjoy the benefits of a covenant relationship without assuming its moral responsibilities. That was the problem. So what can we learn from, from this story, from the story of Jerusalem, from the Judites? If there is one thing we can learn, and it took me quite a while to, to, to learn from the book of Jeremiah, is that repentance of the whole life, is what God seeks. God is not interested in formal religion that stems from presuming on God's promises. I'll say that again. Repentance of the whole life is what God seeks. God is not interested in formal religion that stems from presuming on God's promises. What I mean by formal religion is a religion where we come and we appear to be holy and perfect Christians, where we come once or twice a week to church, to pray, and to sing, and to share in the bread and wine, and appear to be happy and in good terms with everyone, to show that we are in complete obedience to Jesus' commands. But the rest of the time, we are just the opposite. We are like ducks swimming in water. Have you ever watched ducks swimming? On the surface, they appear calm, composed. But if you look underwater, they are struggling, they are fighting against sinking. They're fighting to stay afloat. That's how we sometimes are in church and in our own regular lives. This is what we practice at times. Formal religion. Just like the people of Judah. Because of what we have been promised through Christ's finished work on the cross, we seek to presume on God's grace and riches and think that it is okay for us to appear to do good towards towards people, but it's okay to do wrong in our lives towards the people. In other words, it is okay to just appear holy. I can think and act and behave against that. After all the goodness that we do in church, we think it is okay to have ill feelings towards some people. We think it is okay to be angry at someone without giving them a chance to know that they have hurt you. We think it is okay to exclude certain people from our company or our friends' circle. We think it is okay to show favoritism in the body of Christ. We think it is okay to put down a person in public. We think it is okay to want to show out in public that we are smarter or we have the right answers or we are smarter than someone else. We think it is okay to play around with people's lives when they come to help when they come to ask for help from you. We think it is okay to talk down to young people or to show disrespect to those who are older than us. We think it is okay to make our own selfish desires the priority of the people around us. We think it is okay to act or speak in any way we seem fit, especially if it's immature or hurtful. We think... It is okay to be remorseful and depressed when we go through trying times. We think it's okay to commit sexual immorality. It is okay to not study, study God's word or to pray. We think this is all okay because we presume on God's riches and His grace and His promise that He has given to us. We think uh, it's, it's, it's okay to do all these things because God has paid the price for my forgiveness. But I've asked myself this question. Why? Why do I do these things? I don't say these things to point fingers at anyone. I fall short on all these counts. And I had more. I had to stop myself. I asked myself, why do I really do these things? And it is is because we lose sight of the real facts. We lose the importance of what it took To make us a part of God's family. We forget who God is. We forget what He has done. We forget what it really means for God to send His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and me, for people like us. His divine power has granted to us all things that that pertain to life and godliness. He is the author of life. We forget that we share in this great privilege of having eternal life and one day becoming like Him, morally perfect. We forget that it is God's grace that has made us like this. That is a part of his family. And we are part of his family only because of his love. Because he loved us. Loved us so much that he would reach down into our, in our lives and pull us away from the bondage of sin. Rescuing us from the slave market of sin. We want, we want a revolution. We want to replace God's Christianity with our own version of Christianity. We forget who God is and what it really means to have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We want to uproot God's principles. We want to replace it with things that make us happy. As we heard this morning, there is still a small part of sin in us. We are not completely perfect. And it is always that struggle within us, our spiritual side with our fleshly side. And we want to lean a little bit more towards idolatry. We want things to replace God in our life. We want to be happy with with the things that we do with the things of the world, we want to go after money, but at the same time, we want to have entry to God's kingdom. We don't want God's cross, Jesus' cross. And just as the people of Judah, we want faith, but without practice. We want the new covenant blessing, but without covenant obedience. We want to be justified without being sanctified we want a revolution but not reformation just as jeremiah laid out what was expected of the people at that time even peter lays out some things that we need to adhere to in second peter chapter 1 verses 2 to 11 this is what it says may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with moral excellence or virtue, And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this section, Peter is admonishing his readers to to avoid the sin of presumption. He reminds them what a privilege it is to be a part of God's kingdom, that the Son of God has provided everything, everything they need to attain that eternal life to attain godliness and his reasoning is because of that privilege that you have you believers have to lead lives that pleases God Peter goes on to say that faith is the root of all godly virtues and love is the goal or the climax of of a Christian life And verse 7 shows us that love between fellow believers and family-like devotion should be what characterizes the Christian community. Peter says, in effect, that God's grace should not lead to moral relaxation, but it should lead to intense effort. The emphasis on this verse is not what God has done, but it is talking about the responsibility that we have as human beings. That we have a part to play in salvation. We have a part in the sanctification process of working towards being conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, God has saved you. But you have a part to play. Sanctification is all about you. But thanks to God, it is not on your strength that you are being sanctified. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. But people don't want that. People don't want to be sanctified. It is not merely enough to come and do externally what appears to be right, but we need to be right internally as well. Our heart and head matters as well, not just the external. We should never forget if God, the creator of everything, an infinite and perfect being, can love a finite and sinful person like me, how much more should we love one another who are at the same level? If God can show us grace, how much more we should show grace to one another? If God can love us, how much more should we love one another? We need to show love not only to one another, but... Our main reason for existence is not not only to enjoy God, but it is also to reach the lost of this world. To shine the light outside, to show love to the people outside to the Hindus, to the Muslims, to the Sikhs, to those who are lost, to those who don't know how to drive on the roads. We have to love them. We need to change the way we act, the way we think and speak, because what happens on the surface is a result of what is happening at a much lower and deeper level. And what is happening at the deeper level sometimes stems from the fact that we are presuming on God's promises, on God's unmerited favor on God's grace on what God achieved on the cross we must seek to have complete repentance in our lives complete reversal in the way we think we need reformation, we need change and so I want to end with a question, do you, what do we seek for, what are we striving towards, a revolution where we replace the Christianity that God has laid out for The Christianity that Jesus Christ came to die for? Or do we want a reformation where we accept that we are wrong? That where we know we have done wrong and we want to change and align ourselves to what God wants us to do. To live how God wants us to live. And as a final reminder, I just want to say that those who seek justification without sanctification are acting on presumption and they need reformation. Let's pray. Dear Lord Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your son and what he did on the cross. We want to thank you for the gift of your word, Heavenly Father. A book that we can always turn to to learn and see the way we sometimes backslide or the way we go on the wrong path. We want to thank you for making your word as a mirror where we can see the wrong that we have done, that keeps us in check. And we want to pray, Heavenly Father, that if we have been blinded by this world, we want to pray that you would open our eyes to see that there is some small truth in the book of Jeremiah, that we are like those people, that we take your your grace and what your Son has done on the cross for granted. We think because we have accepted Him and You have given us the grace to understand what He has done and because we are saved, we think that it is okay to not love one another. To think and act in the wrong way. But we want to pray, Heavenly Father, that You would give us a strength to not focus on just appearing holy, that You would enable us to live holy. And from that holiness, that we would reach the ultimate climax of showing love. That we would exude love not only to the people around us, but to even the common folk who are lost outside in this world. We want to thank you for all that you have done, Heavenly Father. And we want to pray that you would watch over all of us. And that you would keep us safe. And that you would use us in your ministry, Heavenly Father. Help us not to be complacent. Help us to work on our salvation that you, have, that you have done, Heavenly Father, that You have achieved on the cross, which doesn't end there, where He has risen from the grave and where Your Son is sitting on the right hand of, of the Father, Heavenly, dear God. Help us to strive to conform to the image of Your Son. This we ask in the most precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.